Well, let's uh, turn then to that second passage that we read from the Word of God, the Book of Psalms and Psalm 2. And uh, the command in verse 12, which is addressed really to all of us, particularly, of course, in the psalm to kings and judges, but really it extends to all of us, and that is a command to kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. A command to kiss the son. And here the kiss is not a kiss of... Um, Intimacy or a kiss of um, affection. It's really a kiss of allegiance. For example, when uh, someone comes to acknowledge a person being either a king or a queen, they will give a kiss which recognizes their kingship and authority and their subjection to that. It's in that sense that we understand these words. It's in that sense that we're meant to understand all of us give our allegiance to him and kiss the psalm. Now this psalm is a, a very important psalm. Uh, they're all precious in their own way, but there are some psalms which uh, carry more importance than others. One evidence of that is the fact that it's quoted is so often in the New Testament. The apostles base a lot of their preaching on this particular psalm. And there are, I think, uh, three reasons why it is particularly important for ourselves, even tonight. The first is that it, as I said, introduces us to the king who dominates the whole book of Psalms. Although the book of Psalms is a book of Psalms for singing, you could describe it sometimes thematically as the songbook of the covenant king because he is the one at the heart of it and of course the king is not David or Solomon or any other earthly king. The king that comes before us in the Psalms is none other than the king of kings. In other words the Lord Jesus Christ. He dominates the Psalter and in Psalm 2 right away we're introduced to him. The Psalm also reminds us of the nature and extent of his kingship. Our views of Christ's kingship are sometimes very restricted. I mean, you may think of him tonight, uh, if you are a Christian, as your king. Maybe you think of him as king of the church. Both these are true, of course. He is your king, and he is king of the church. But he's king of a lot more than that. Uh, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you may think that Christ is not your king. But that doesn't change the fact that he is. I was reading the other day of uh, someone um, in this country itself, as, as King Charles was going uh, round about, somebody shouted out that, that you're not my king. Well, that might express his wish, but it certainly doesn't express the fact the fact of the matter is that if he is a British subject, indeed, Charles is his king, whether he likes that or not. And the kingship of Christ is much the same. He is your king and mine. He's the king of all of us, whether we recognize that kingship or not. 
Of course, the Apostle Paul famously tells us that a day will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Jehovah to the glory of God the Father. That last expression is a wonderful one. God says he will not give his glory to another. But when everyone says that Jesus is Jehovah, God is glorified in that. There is no jealousy there, for he is indeed God. The nature and extent of Christ's kingship, in other words, is absolutely universal. He is king of all peoples, king of all nations, king of all kings, and king of all judges. And the kings and the judges that are appealed to at the end of this psalm um, are, of course, the, the um, executive and the judiciary, really, in every land and in every kingdom. A powerful reminder to us that the executive, the government, the judiciary, the judges are all to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ, his law and his Bible in all their laws, their statutes and their judgments. Of course, we live in a nation that once knew that, but has now forgotten it, which of course takes us really to this psalm. But that's our starting point. We remember that. And again, the psalm is important because it really accurately describes the Western world and the secular democracies in which we live, which are all in conscious, deliberate, set and established rebellion against the Lord and against is anointed and we'll see that as we go on. So for these reasons the psalm is important for ourselves tonight. And of course the psalm ends with this powerful appeal to the kings and the judges and by implication everybody under them. In other words it extends to them. Everyone give your allegiance to the king. Now the psalm itself falls into very three, three very clear and obvious sections. And I suppose it's tempting to take them in the order in which they come. But actually it might be helpful if we just follow the logical order of the psalm rather than the form in which the psalm is given us to see. And there isn't any harm in doing that. The, the word of God is given us in a certain way and God sometimes means us to open it out and to move it around and to look at it from various points of view. And I think it's helpful to begin this psalm in the middle and then to see what it says elsewhere because the middle of the psalm actually takes us to the heart of the psalm, what the psalm is really all about. And that's why the central part of it is in verses 7 to 9 where the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven declares a decree. So the setting there is in heaven and the theme of that section is the authority that Christ actually possesses. That's the heart of the psalm. That's what the psalm is all about. Of course it's going to talk about how we respond to that authority but the authority itself comes first. 
So the opening scene, let it be the heavenly scene, where the authority of Christ comes before us. The second section that we look at is the opening section of the psalm, which is set on the earth, where the nations are raging, the peoples are plotting, and everyone seems to be taking counsel against the Lord and his anointed. So the setting there is on the earth, and the theme this time is the response of people to that divine authority. How do they feel about it? What do they want to do about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords? The third section of the psalm is really in two parts. First of all, in verses 4 to 6, where God speaks himself in hell. Well, first of all, he laughs in verse 4, which is a very unusual thing to find in Scripture. He laughs, and then in verse 5, he speaks in his wrath. And the last part of that section is really the closing section of the psalm, where there is a divine judgment pronounced on the human rebellion. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, and kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Because when his wrath is kindled just even a little, well, blessed are all who on him stay, all who are allied to him and who have pledged their allegiance to him. Blessed are then when his wrath is even kindled but a little. Well then, divine authority and the human rebellion against it and the divine judgment on that human rebellion. Let's uh, begin then with divine authority, the authority of God. The scene opens halfway through in heaven where we find God and his son, the anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I speak about the authority of God here, I don't mean the authority of God considered simply as God. Uh, that authority has always been there. The three persons in one have always been uh, God and therefore possessing all authority over all things at absolutely every time. But by divine authority here, what I mean is the special authority that is actually possessed by the God-man. The authority or the kingship that's possessed by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen, exalted, and reigning in heaven. And, uh, of course, it is of the utmost importance that we understand that to be the case. When the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead in resurrection, he then rose up to heaven in ascension. And there's more to it than that. He sat down on the right hand of God in session, which is immediately followed by a coronation. And after that coronation, the kingship, the rule and the authority of all things are formally placed in his hands. Now that, friends, 
is in itself a, a warning to all that this is not a figure to trifle with. It's not a man to consider like you'd consider other men. It's a message to us too as Christians that we remember with joy and gladness that however chaotic and disorganized the world appears, it is moving along according to a purpose and a plan, that everything is in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, even the evil that he permits. And he rules over all things, as Paul tells us, for the benefit of his people for the good of his church. But by divine authority, I mean just that, the authority that God, ever since the coronation in heaven, following his resurrection, the authority that is possessed by the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is at God's right hand. Now the Father in heaven here issues a universal decree. And he's placed the decree in the hand of the king at his right hand. And here in the psalm we're admitted into heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ reads the decree that the Father has put into his hand. And here you have it in verse 7. Christ says, I will declare the decree. And the decree says this, that the Lord, or my Father if you like, but the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask me and I'll give you nations for your inheritance, I will give you the ends of the earth for your possession, you shall break them, that's their government and their authority, with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces, just like a potter's vessel, a vessel of clay. Now sometimes, in this conquest, Christ uh, smashes hearts in graves. We're thankful that he does that. He stretches forth, as Psalm 110 tells us, he stretches forth the rod of his power through the church from Zion, and he makes a willing people in the day of his power. In other words, he doesn't always conquer by destruction. Yes, the Lord does destroy his enemies. But he also conquers by bringing them into his glorious kingdom. He breaks heart in hearts in grace. He breaks hearts in kindness. Psalm 45 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ rides forth in state for the cause of the gospel, for meekness, for truth and for righteousness. And as the gospel is preached, the arrows pierce the hearts of those who are enemies to the king. But the effect of that is to bring them onto the king's side. But that is the decree. The decree has to do with Christ being the Son of God and possessing the nations and all that are in them. Now that, first of all, is a statement of identity. The decree is issued that God says that this one at my right hand is my son. Now you may think, well, there's not that much to that. But there's a lot to it. God had said before that Jesus was his son. 
at his baptism when the waters were poured over and were told that a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You'll remember too that on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, the glory cloud appeared and a voice which said again, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. This time the decree that's being issued from heaven is not speaking about a beloved son, but a begotten son. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now it's easy perhaps to misunderstand what's meant here by Christ being begotten. And the reason I'm saying that is because if if you're familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity itself, you'll remember that what distinguishes the Son as a person from the Father as a person is that the Son is begotten of the Father. He stands in relationship to him as Son to Father. And that's an eternal begottenness. In other words, I suppose when we think of a Father and a Son, immediately temporal considerations come in and we say, well, a Father must exist before a Son. Well, absolutely. In our form of existence, that is the case. In the divine existence, that is not the case. The Father was always a Father to the Son, who was always his Son. There was never a time when the first person was not a Father. Never a time when the second person was not the Son. That's why the Son is described as eternally begotten. God gave his only begotten Son. And the begottenness there is a reference to the eternal generation, the Son of his love, who was always with him as a son, as he was with him as his father. And it's easy to think that the begottenness referred to here is that begottenness. You are my son, I have begotten you. But you'll notice that what he says is today I have begotten you. And as the New Testament may explain, this is a resurrection psalm. This is an ascension psalm, or if you like, a coronation psalm. So what on earth does the today mean? And there are some people who try and explain that by a kind of measure of poetic license. They say that what today means here is just a reference to the everlasting day. Um, But that's just trying to make it fit. And I think we can all smell that straight away. No, friends, the the text is not speaking of eternal generation. It's speaking of another kind of generation. Revelation 1.5 tells us that Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. The first person ever to come back from the dead with resurrection life. I'm sure most of you would be aware that there were certain individuals who were brought back from death to life. Not many just a few, the Lord himself brought some back, like Jairus' daughter and Lazarus. But they returned to ordinary life. They didn't receive resurrection life. In other words, they all died again, these people. Christ was the first who did not. He actually rose in accordance with the prayer that he asked his father, that he would preserve him through death, through the grave, and bring him back in resurrection life. When he desired life of thee, 
no life to whom didst give. What kind of life? Even such a length of days that he forevermore should be the first begotten from the dead. <coughs> oh, friends, death is a terrible thing. Death is a final thing. It's an awful thing. It's a wonderful thing to think that there is such a thing as being begotten from the dead. Astonishingly, from the clay and from the dust, just like the first man was composed of the chemical compounds in the earth, lo and behold, so is the second man, glorified and transformed, but there is a life that comes from death. And that's what the Father is saying. I have raised you today as the first begotten from the dead. Why make that statement? Well, just to remind us, to remind you and to remind me and to remind the whole world that that is in fact so. I mean, just a few days before this, his visage was marred beyond the visage of any man. He was reduced, battered to a pulp, is what Isaiah says, almost beyond recognition. That is really what the expression means in the Hebrew in Isaiah 53, when it says that his visage was marred beyond that of any man. It's really, it really means marred beyond that of man. Unrecognizable. And of course, he was crucified as an absolute reject, and he was laid in the tomb. Now his enemies didn't want to lay him in a rich tomb, but he was laid in a, laid in a rich tomb for a reason. Uh, because his sufferings were over, and his exaltation even then was mysteriously beginning. But what God wants us to know and to believe, and he wants it decreed in heaven and issued upon the earth, is that that man, Jesus of Nazareth, is actually Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Let kings know that. Let judges know that. Let the nations of the earth know that. Let peoples know that. You know that. Let me know this. That Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's a statement of his identity. And again, it's a statement of authority, obviously, because Christ tells us when he reads the decree that his father has put into his hand, he says that if I ask my father, as I will, in fact, I am just about to do so, if I ask my father, I will receive the nations as my inheritance, and I will proceed to conquer them with the rod of my power. God wants in that decree to be made known to us. A lordship that extends everywhere. Over every individual, every institution, every school, every church, every government, every cabinet, every king, every queen, all the judges of the realm. You must honour Christ as you honour the Father. Now how is this decree to be issued? Well, how is any royal decree to be issued? It's to be issued in every country by ambassadors. I mean, that's what happens when a king has a decree that he wants to be made known to all the nations of the earth. He sends ambassadors. Ambassadors are simply those who are commissioned to say what the king once said, no more, no less. The ambassador can't make it up as he goes along, can't put a spin on it. The ambassador's job is just to be faithful to the king, period. 
Of course, it's famously represented in, in the message that Jonah was told to give Nineveh, who, as I mentioned just recently, was a reluctant preacher, reluctantly carrying out a commission to a people he didn't think really should be saved. But God said to him, go and preach to them the preaching that I bid thee. That's the word of God, without addition and without anything taken away. You know, a lot of what's wrong in pulpits today generally uh, lies in what's being said. But most of what's wrong lies in what's unsaid. There's no doubt about that. And you can harm the gospel just as much by what you don't say as by what you say. God wants the ambassador to declare the royal authority of the king. And it's the ambassador's task to do that. And as Paul said, speaking of himself and the apostles and all preachers of the gospel, he says, now then we are ambassadors of Christ. And his kingship is to be declared. Now friend, one aspect of that is this. And it is important that sometimes... We are prone to think of the gospel merely as an invitation. And there's no doubt that sometimes in the Bible it's presented like that. Because the ambassador's task is to go on a bended knee. And not just to announce, but to plead. I spoke in the morning about the importance of pleading. The ambassador's duty is to plead. And to plead with you to recognize the authority of this king. The importance of submission to him. And it is part of my commission too as an ambassador and every ambassador's commission to plead because Christ is pleading with you. As he pled in his days of humiliation in this world, he still has the same heart. There is still the same urgency attached to that invitation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavily burdened in your life, and I will give you rest. I mean, these are present. These are invitations, and they're extremely precious invitations. But the gospel is not just an invitation. It is a command. If you refuse an invitation, well, as they say, hey-ho, or so what? But if you refuse a command... It's a different matter altogether. Repent and believe the gospel. God requires all men to believe. When Paul was preaching to the Athenians, um, who were renowned for uh, their philosophical and rhetorical skills, he brought his own message. And he brought it very powerfully. And the sermon is recorded in Acts chapter 17, And there are some references in it here and there to their own poets and to their own Greek philosophers. But he's not ashamed to say that the gospel he is preaching is is not a worldview to be embraced. Well, it is that, but it's much more than that. It's not just an invitation to be accepted. He's not afraid to say that God commands all men to repent. Why? Oh, well, this is the nub of the matter. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by the man he has ordained and he has given assurance thereof 
by raising him from the dead. The empty tomb, the reports that this man dead is now alive, the 40 days in which Christ proved by, as Luke says, many infallible proofs that he was living and risen, well, that is the fact that should make us all tremble. The invitation to believe is a command to repent and to believe. And the ambassador needs to communicate that. The consequences of not accepting the command, well, are off. Kiss the son, lest he is angry, and you perish from the way. Now that's divine authority. And that's, in a way, logically where the psalm starts. God is on his throne, and Jesus Christ is at his right hand. Let the universe know it. Let the whole earth hear it. But second, we have the human rebellion. And the psalm opens with that. Because why are the nations raging? Raging. What an interesting word. It tells us that there's some kind of brooding, seething anger in the hearts of the people. And not only are they raging, we're told that they are plotting, and they're plotting a vain thing, a foolish thing of some kind or another. And the kings of the earth have set themselves, and the rulers are taking counsel. Now you'll notice it's against the Lord, yes, and against his anointed self-consciously against his anointed. In other words, it's not the case that they are in rebellion against God and that just happens to mean that they must also be in rebellion against his son. No, it's consciously like that. They don't want God and neither do they want his Christ. They are anti-Christian. Anti-Christian. Because the psalm is set post-cross and post-resurrection. Now, just look a little more closely at this rebellion. What's the rebellion about? Well, it's about freedom. Freedom. There's a saying now that's been made popular ever since the 90s when Clinton was elected, when he was asked about what the, what the issue was in the American elections. He says, it's the economy, stupid. In other words, it's always the economy. Well, the objective in human rebellion is always about freedom. Why don't you want to be a Christian? Well, I want to be free. And what do you mean by that? Well, I just want to do my own thing. I, I want to live my life my way. My life as I understand it, and as I'd like to live it, according to my own moral code, which I'm free to choose myself. That's just a a kind of paraphrase of what Satan told Adam and Eve that they should do. There was, a, there, there was a tree in the middle of the garden, which was the tree of life, and every time they took from it, they were reminded that God was the author of their life. There was also another tree which they were told not to take of the fruit of it. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Its purpose was to remind them that God alone was the author of good and evil. God was their executive he was their judiciary. He was their legislator. They were to live in humble obedience to him. And living like that, their lives would be full. The lives of their children would be full. 
the earth would be blessed. The earth would be green and pure and clean and fruitful and everything would be holy and good as God had made it to be just like that. Satan's voice, of course, originally came by saying, uh, that's not life, you know. That's not life. Life as I know it is different from life as you know it. What you really need is freedom to decide what's good and evil for yourselves. You too can become like God. You can become masters of your own lives, authors of your own destiny. Be men and be women and forge out that existence for yourself. This tree is really a sign that the one who is over you is actually a bit of a tyrant. If he was good, as good as he claims to be, and as good as you think he is, he would not be interested in forbidding you anything. Because what's life but to be free and to do what you want? He fell for it. Adam, in his own way, fell for it too. You fell for it, and I fell for it. And every single person that walks the face of the earth or that ever has walked the face of the earth falls for it. It's the fundamental lie that life is best lived without God. The devil is good at packaging lies. He usually packages half-truths. But like I said to you not that long ago, the greatest lie that he could commit or that he could sell us really is that we could live without our creator in fact that we could come to the point where we think that our creator doesn't exist I think that lie is so far-fetched that I'm astonished the devil tried it but lo and behold it's a whopper and it has succeeded and how foolish we are in believing it the Bible isn't quick to call people fools but it says that the fool says in his heart that there is no God you know, before I came to God, I thought I was very wise, and I thought that Christians were fools. Not in an unkind way, in fact worse than that, in an arrogant way. And I'm still not wise as I'd like to be wise, but I'm certainly wise enough to know that I was a fool then. And I'm glad of that. And I hope the day will come. And you too will be glad of that. I hope it will be today itself. Now what they want to do of course is to set themselves free. They express it in verse 3 by saying let us break their bonds and pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now is that not interesting? That's how they see their relationship to God. <laughs> cords and bonds. Oh man, religion is a, is a bind. You know? That's really what they're saying. It's a bind. It's cords and bonds. Religion itself is an interesting word, coming from a Latin word, religio, which means to tie back, to bind back. And although people are debasing the word, because you notice that Satan takes every good word and he tries to trample it into the dust. And religion is like that. People try and trample it out. At heart, it's a beautiful word, which tells us that God is actually tying us back to himself. That's what real faith in Christ does. It, it brings us back to God in a bond of covenant and in a bond of love, in a bond of peace and a bond of joy and a bond of obedience. That's, that's what it does. It binds back. But for them it's a bind. 
It's a bind and they don't want to be bound to God. The goal is freedom. Freedom. Now, who's involved in this rebellion? Well, the fact is that everybody's involved in it. The kings and the judges are especially singled out, but they're only singled out because they're at the top. Everyone at the bottom is involved in it too. But you'll notice that the kings of the earth in verse 12 set themselves. The Hebrew expression means that they take a determined stance. And the rulers are actually taking counsel together. And when they do so, they lay aside all their other disagreements. You know, it's a truth that faith in Christ brings people together in a wonderful way. I've, I've never known anything like it, really. And it's one of the joys when you become a Christian to discover just the many ways in which God brings people that are so different uh, together in love. And nothing binds, really like the love of Christ. But let me also say that the, the next closest thing is people bound together because they're his enemies. Sometimes it's astonishing who links hands just because they are opposed to Christ. There's a, there's a strange example of that actually in connection with the trial and uh, arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll remember that we're told in the Acts of the Apostles that Herod and Pilate, who actually really loathed each other, I mean, Herod was the, well, he wasn't technically king of the Jews, he was known, known as that. Pilate was, of course, the Roman governor of the province at this particular point. We know that they hated each other. But we're told that on the day in which Christ was tried, that that very day they became friends who had previously been at enmity. And that's not just stating a fact. It's stating a, a spiritual truth that persists. That people seem to bind themselves together in a special way against God and against the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, um, when the apostles gathered together, um, they remembered this psalm uh, in connection with Herod and Pilate and they sang this psalm together. You'll find that in Acts chapter 4 that they sang Psalm 2 in a special connection with Herod and Pilate. They realised that the psalm was being fulfilled. And you still see strange people linking hands. You'll find uh, people on the far left and on the far right. They're quite happy to be anti-Christian. The hard left and hard Islam. Man, they're strange bedfellows, honestly. Very strange bedfellows. The hard left and Islam. But you, you don't find them saying anything against each other. You just don't. There's a funny kind of alliance between many strands of feminism and Islam. I mean, there's very little as offensive as female genital mutilation. I seldom hear feminists say a squeak about it. There's the belief in some cultures that it's okay to select children for life if they're males and not to select them if they're females. Don't hear a squeak about that because it's in a certain culture which you can't touch. 
don't hear much about people speaking out against the burqa or anything like that, even though it's us. I mean, to, to force women to address from dress from head to toe to the extent that you can only see their eyes sounds pretty repressive to me. But they won't say a squeak against it. Why not? You ever wonder why not? Have you ever realised that it seems to be? Anything goes but Christ. And anything goes but Christianity. Have you noticed that? You can say anything against Christ. Write or draw anything you like against Christ. But not against some others. And politicians are quick to despise our Lord and our faith. But not to despise other people's lords and other people's faiths. Well, friends, it's always been thus. The strangest people become friends because they are opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder who your own friends are. Do you choose as your companions those who have chosen Christ as their companion? There's an old saying that you can tell a man or a woman indeed by the friends that they have. Who are our chosen companions. Well, this human rebellion against the Lord is also against his anointed. Oh, friend, are you in that rebellion? Now, you may say in the one level, no, I'm not. But are you really? Will you have this man to reign over you? Did our Lord not say you're either for me or against me? Are you for him? No, well, you are against him. And who does that mean that you're with? The Pharisees prided themselves in being children of Abraham, therefore being children of God. Christ said, you are actually of your father the devil, he said, because it is his work that you do. Our Lord wasn't teaching that there's any connection of that kind between them. But he's saying, look, there's not a real living connection with God, definitely, because the life that you show is a life of disobedience and rebellion which is found in its fullness in the devil. Is that the image we carry? Is that the image you want to carry? Is that the image you want to take to the grave? Is it the image that you want to take to the judgment seat of Christ? Third and finally, I want you to notice the divine response to this rebellion. It's in three parts. Now that sounds as though I'm going to take a long time. There's three brief parts. The first response is a surprising one in verse 4. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. I think I'm fairly sure of this, that this is the only reference to God laughing in the Bible. And uh, perhaps it seems to you a little out of place. Now, I suppose at some level every ambassador is an apologist, but God doesn't need an apologist. He can well defend himself. Is the laughter about? Well, I think the best way, friends, to describe it is just like this. Some things are as stupid as they are bad. And fighting against God is one of these things. Just think about it for a minute. On the one side, you have the author and creator of all 
who sustains these far-flung stars, every atom in them, in their place, simply by the word of his power. On the other side, you. That's funny, as well as being mad. It's no surprise that God laughs. Yes, friends, our fall and rebellion, our sinfulness is tragic and evil and sinful. It's also ridiculous. And there's a sense in which God wants us to come to terms with that. What a fool I've been. And, you know, the the prodigal son, in some respects, came to that. You know, when he was stripped of everything, he, he chose to live apart from his father to live life the way he wanted and so often happens it goes pear-shaped and when it went pear-shaped as life may have gone pear-shaped for you too he came to himself and he said there's more bread than anyone could ever want in my father's nose. what a fool I've been and what a fool I've become that's why it says at the beginning of the psalm why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing Everything that people plot in the world of economics and politics and justice and social justice and everywhere else is foolish. We cannot salvage ourselves, never mind the world, unless God is at the heart of it. I mean, everyone wants to save the planet. Save the planet. We need to save ourselves. We need to save ourselves. We can't save ourselves, never mind the planet. And God is calling us to come back to himself. Strange how people need to have a cause and they want to they fight for a cause. And sometimes see so many of these young people just now and they certainly found a cause to fight for. And maybe at one time it is, this or this that, but the planet's the latest one. I mean, there are there are teenagers there howling and crying because the world's gonna end tomorrow. Dear me, there's a bigger issue staring us all in the face and it has to do with dying and going to hell the planet God will wrap that up when he's done with it what's more he'll renew and refashion it but we need to get our souls right with God that's the crisis that's the fire that's the impending judgment that we've all got to reckon with no wonder then that God follows his laughter with a word of wrath in verse 5 where he says to them that I have set my king on Zion there he is that's where he stayed and we either recognise that and how good it is or else we will face the consequences and what are these well he says if we do not kiss the son with a kiss of allegiance then when God's wrath is kindled but a little well he says the only people who are blessed in that day are those who have put their trust in him we're told in Revelation 6 of um, our Lord's uh, return when the sixth seal is opened, followed by an earthquake, the sun itself darkening, the moon appearing like blood, the sky suddenly recedes like a scroll rolled up, and every mountain and island is moved out of its place. This is a conflagration. 
Peter tells us that the elements themselves will be loosened as they melt with a fire. <coughs> the, the, the chemical elements are bound together. They will be loosened, each one, with the fervent heat. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, the slaves and the free men, hide themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they say to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand you know instead of praying to the hills asking them to fall on them would they not have been better praying to God asking him to deliver them because the great day of his wrath has come and so God says lay down your arms I am interested in peace Lay down your arms. Kings, be wise. You like to teach others. Learn. You judges of the earth, you learn to serve the Lord with fear who rejoice in him along with tremble. It's a strange mix, that. A strange spice, fear and tremble, with a very distinctive smell. The Christian knows exactly what it's like to have a mixture of fear and rejoicing in his or her heart at the same time. And the only way to find that is by kissing the Son. Friends, as, a, as an ambassador of Christ, it is my task, and I close with this, as Paul famously puts it in, in 2 Corinthians and chapter 5, we are ambassadors for Christ, he says, as though God were pleading through us. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something uh, very touching about God pleading. God doesn't need to plead, but he pleads. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God for he made him and we've been thinking about this Thursday, well, sorry Friday and Saturday and this morning he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him will you not kiss the son your life will change it really will, it will change for the better in fact your life will really only just begin doesn't matter how old you are. That's a wonderful thing. Let us pray. Eternal God, we bless you once more for the life that you impart uh, through your Son who came to give us life and that we would have it more abundantly. We are thankful that you took us in great grace to that place where we realize that this present life and how we live it is but a living death. And that this world itself in which we live, which can sometimes appear so inviting and alluring, is really just a prison house. That it is full of the dying and the lost. We look to a better world and a new heaven and a new earth. 
which you will recreate out of the ashes of this one. And we realize that there is no salvation in the world of politics or economics or indeed psychology. No salvation outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone redeems men and women. He alone redeems humanity to bring it into its original image and likeness, the image and likeness of God. How great the salvation that you have prepared for your people. How great the rescue involved in redemption. Lord, let it be ours. Let none of us inside these walls tonight be numbered amongst the lost. And may we recognise this sermon itself as another call, another opportunity, another invitation, and another command to come to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Our uh, closing psalm is just the, the psalm that we've been looking at, Psalm 2. And uh, we'll sing what we've just meditated on. Psalm 2. <coughs> Again, I, I don't need to, to read these. We've read them already and we've considered them. God um, tells us that part of the decree involves asking of him, verse 8. That's Jesus asking, and for heritage the heathen I'll make thine. For possession, I to thee will give earth's utmost life. In verse 12, kiss the sun. Eight to the end of the psalm will stand to sing. Begin to burn. Bless.
of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.